You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Our passage this morning is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, as we continue our study through John's Gospel, we have the opportunity today to what, do what Hebrews 12 says, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so today we're going to meditate on Jesus, fix our mind on Jesus, worship him and adore him. And so we have three points for the sermon today. We're going to look at the overwhelming power of Jesus and also the incredible humility of Jesus. And then we're going to see and think together about how that changes us, how that changes our life. So first, let's start with the overwhelming power of Jesus. Start with me in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 1. The story continues. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So we've moved on from the monologue that Jesus has been discussing in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. You remember he had Passover meal with his friends, with his disciples. They exited that Passover meal and walked together for a long time, I guess, because all that's recorded for four chapters that we just previously studied. And in that discussion, Jesus tells his friends, I'm leaving. I am going to ascend back to the Father, and you will be without me. But he gives them incredible promises. My spirit, I send to you. I will answer your prayer. You will have one another. The world will oppose you, but you will overcome the world. And the mission of Jesus will move forward through you and through the future of the church. 
He gives these incredible, incredible promises that we've just been studying, but now the story is taking a turn and we are witnessing the beginning of the end. The cross is now on the horizon. It's been Passover week. Like I said, this is the night of Passover and Jesus is about to become the great and final Passover lamb. So they cross the brook Kidron, which if you're looking at the temple, it's to the east of the temple. If you cross that brook, there's the Mount of Olives, and these friends, Jesus and his friends, congregate at the bottom of the Mount of Olives in this garden. And the story continues in verses 2 and 3. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met with his disciples there, met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas galvanizes this large group of men to come and arrest Jesus. The word for band of soldiers there refers to a group of up to 200 people. So remember, it's Passover week. Millions of Jews are in Jerusalem at this time. Rome has sent armies, cohorts of of Roman soldiers to, to the city at this time. And so Judas gathers up maybe 200 of those soldiers to come with him to arrest Jesus. You notice also he brings chief priests uh, uh, so, excuse, excuse me, some officers from the chief priests, which is temple police. He brings chief priests, which are elected officials who rule and control the Sanhedrin. He brings Pharisees, the religious purists and nationals of this day. So what you should see as you stand back and look at this, at this development in the story is Judas is getting everyone in on this arrest. All of the institutional powers of the day, Judas has brought to this garden to come and arrest Jesus. And you wonder to yourself, Why would he do that? Why would Judas bring all the powers of the day to come and grab this man, this carpenter from Nazareth? Well, if you keep reading, you'll find out why Judas might have thought this was necessary. Why to bring all the powers of the day, verses 4 through 6. They answered him, we're looking for Jesus in Nazareth. And so Jesus said to them, I am he. And remember, It's dark out. Even though they have torches and lanterns, it's not the 21st century, so you still can't see very well. So Jesus makes himself known. He says, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said that to them, I am he, what happens? Read it. They drew back and fell to the ground. Literally, in in the Greek, you could translate this, I am. He says, I am. We we supply the word he just because it helps us make sense of what he's saying. But quite literally, it's I am. Jesus says to them, I am, and they collapse. Now, why do you think this army of men, remember, 200 soldiers possibly, temple police, the powers of the day, all of them collapse when he says, I am. Why do you think that is? It's because I am is the name of God. What What we say is Yahweh the very name of God, his essence, his one word summary of who he is, Yahweh, I am. Now think about that with me. What does I am mean? This is the name God gives himself. He's disclosed himself to us by naming himself the great I am. What does it mean to be the I am? It means God is perfect. It means he needs nobody. He has no deficiencies. He has no flaws. He has no weaknesses. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. To be the I am means I am totally sufficient. I'm not strong-armed. I'm not manipulated by anybody. And so we have need. We have want. We have deficiencies. Therefore, we can be manipulated. 
because we have need, and people expose that need and leverage that need. But God will never compromise. He can never be bought. He will never take the shortcut because he has no lack and he has no need. He is the great I am. He names himself that in Exodus 34. Remember, Moses asks God, who are you? Who am I dealing with? Who are you, God? He says, I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. And he tells us that that means he's totally free. Remember, he's not dependent on anyone. He does whatever he wills. He is the I am. So he shows grace and love and mercy, and it's not performed for. It's not merited. It's on his own, the basis of his own choice. But also we see in that story that because he is the great I am, he will never compromise. He will always do what is right. He is just. The great I am means he is love and he is justice. And if you read that story in Exodus 34 where God announces that he is the I am, Yahweh, what happens is after that announcement's made, Moses falls on his face and worships God. And then he stays in God's presence for 40 days, has the law of Moses, the law of God written again. He comes down from the mountain and his face is radiating. His face is lit up like fireworks and it causes all the people, all the Israelites who see him coming down the mountain to dread him. They're terrified by what they see. I'm not sure if uh, you've ever had the opportunity to meet a famous person or be in the same room as somebody who has, who has that kind of status. I've uh, been in the same room as like famous pastors and authors before. And what happens when you're nobody is you just like sort of fall apart and get undone. You're like thinking to yourself, what can I say that's going to uh, impress this person and make them remember me, you know? You start like jumbling over your words, stumbling over your words. You can't keep your thoughts straight. You just come undone in the presence of greatness. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It certainly has happened to me. Just imagine though standing before the perfect holy one who by his own flawless nature exposes every bit of our sin. We wouldn't just be overcome by greatness. We would be overcome by fear. We would be overcome by terror. So it makes sense that this group of men armed, weaponized men can't bear up under the mention of God's name. Jesus, in this spoken word, releases only a fraction of the fullness of his glory. One other thought. Remember when, remember when we all used to go to matinees? Anyone, anyone used to do that? No one does that anymore, but that was the glory days, okay? Matinees. And then your brain gets tricked when you're in the movie theater watching a, a movie during the daytime. You think it's, you know, your, eyes are, your eyes are accustomed to the dark. So what do you do? You walk out of the movie theater, you walk outside, and you're immediately blinded by the sunlight. You just get overwhelmed by the brightness. And so here's this group of men. They're committing this heinous, sinful, unjust act. They love the darkness. They want to protect their power. And they're buckling underneath the gravity of God's glory the weight of his justice, just a fraction of it. And this is only a fraction of the fullness of God, a fraction of his glory. We know because if God released all of his glory, if Jesus, who is God in flesh, released all of his glory, these men would just be obliterated. One more illustration. Remember that scene from Raiders, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, at the very end, when the Ark of the Covenant, the lid is released, and then those like ghouls come out, you know, if wants to like reference, you know, uh, talk to me about some sound theology, I can tell them what that really was all about. But remember that scene, that scene, like the ghosts are released, and what happens? Like all those guys' faces begin to melt. 
I watched that when I was like seven years old, completely traumatizing. Anyone else traumatized by that? That's why I imagine like that's what God's glory would do if he just released it. We would just be obliterated, just melt before him. Because you remember the story of Nahab and Abihu in the Old Testament. They were priests who were irreverent in the presence of God. They offered strange fire and God's anger. His fire consumed them in a moment. We remember Isaiah who sees God in all of his glory. He's caught up in that vision and sees the full majesty of God. And he says what? Woe is me. Which means I'm a dead man. I'm coming undone. Even John. John who wrote this gospel the beloved disciple of Jesus, the one who laid his head on the bosom of Jesus, sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, King Jesus in all his glory, and he falls on his face as though dead. I remember reading The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. He accounted, the, they recorded uh, the story where Jesus, just by one whisper, tells the, the, tells the water and the wind and the, and the storm to be still, and the whole water just calms. And it says that the disciples were afraid. Think about that. Why would the disciples be afraid witnessing Jesus calm the storm? And Sproul says it's because they no longer had any category to fit this God-man in. He was completely other. Completely, um, you couldn't domesticate him. He's no longer safe. This man, the power that he harnesses, it's dangerous. This is the I am who overthrew Pharaoh who sent fire from heaven on Elijah's altar, who defeated Assyria and Babylon and soon will defeat <clears throat> sin and death and Satan. Jesus only releases a fraction of his glory. What power, what glory, right? Now, what would you do if you were Jesus? Harnessing this divine power, every bit of it, being the very glory, the justice of God in human form, what would you do if you were Jesus? Call down a legion of angels to deliver you? Consume your enemies in a moment? And I know none of us, uh, like, maybe some of us here don't like the Old Testament God. He seems very violent, very brutal. But listen, if you were that God in this moment, you'd go Old Testament on these guys. We all would. We all use our power and our status for our own sake every day to vindicate ourselves to save ourselves, to forward our own agendas, to protect ourselves. But that's not what Jesus does with his power. The overwhelming power of Jesus is surprisingly and astonishingly harnessed in incredible humility, we're going to see. So what does this powerful God-man do? He uses his power to position himself to serve, to protect to bless. You'll see that as we keep going through the story. I want to go back to verse 2 and, and, and read this with me. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So realize this. Jesus chooses a place where he knows he will be found. Judas knew where he was going to go. This is, this is Jesus and his friend's favorite spot. So the trap is laid for him, and Jesus purposefully walks right into the trap. If he walks into his garden, you know he is ensuring his dreadful fate. And so just think about this. God in flesh lets Judas win the day. 
He didn't vindicate himself. He was like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. So Jesus uses his power to subject himself, to subject himself to the Father, which means humbling himself to the level of a prey, the prey of predators. Keep going in the story, verse 7 through 9. After he makes everyone's knees buckle, he asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. So see here, Jesus arranges the situation so that his friends are shielded from trouble. Do you see that? I am he. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Let these men go. He shields his friends from the consequence of a criminal, of an insurrectionist. Remember back in chapter 17, Jesus states in that prayer that he lost none of his friends except the one who would betray him. Jesus is fulfilling his own words by absorbing the punishment reserved for insurrection. He made sure he was the only one who would suffer. I mean, his friends would be guilty in the court of law, I guess, of being insurrectionists. They were part of the band of men, right? The part of the, part of the group. Jesus made sure he would be the only one who suffers. That's what he does with his power. He positions himself to put himself in the crosshairs instead of them. Now imagine knowing what's coming. Jesus knows what's coming. Imagine knowing what's coming. The whipping, the beating, the torture, the harassment, the absolute spiritual, psychological, emotional disintegration that's about to occur. Imagine everything that's on the horizon for Jesus, which he knows is absolutely coming his way. Imagine knowing the kind of death that's to come. The Roman cross where we get the word excruciating from, crucifixion. Imagine then arranging it so that you're certain you're the only one who'd have to experience this. Then the scene continues in verses 10 through 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, poor Peter... Yeah, Peter's just he's kind of a dummy, all right? He cuts off the dude's ear. Now, do you think he's aiming for a guy's ear? I mean, who in this situation is just trying to lop off a guy's ear? Nobody. He's going for the headshot. He is. And he misses and cuts off this guy's ear. What he's trying to do here is Peter's trying to take a stand and do something brave and salvage whatever's left of the kingdom he's trying to build. This is his last ditch effort to preserve his agenda. And so he misses and lops off this guy's ear. And we laugh at him, but he is us. Because we use our power, again, to protect ourselves and our own agenda, but not Jesus. He turns to Peter and says, this is my destiny. This is my fate. Don't stop this from happening. I must drink this cup that the Father has given me. And then what Jesus does is he allows this trial to continue. He's arrested and taken to trial, and look what happens. Look what's spoken, verses 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, treated him as a criminal, although he has done nothing wrong. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And remember, John notes this, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews long before in chapter 11 that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. They're going to make Jesus the scapegoat. They're going to let Jesus take the fall so that they don't have to. 
And Jesus let it happen. Jesus walked right into it. He would take the fall so that others didn't have to. So there's these different segments of the story that you're observing, right? As we go through the story, there's these different sequences. And if you're paying attention, there should be a greater idea that emerges from these pages, from, from the story, the, from the details of the story. Let's review the story. Jesus uses his power to submit to death. Jesus uses his power to shield his friends from punishment. Jesus uses his power to drink the cup. Jesus uses his power to take the fall. What should emerge from this story is the very message of the gospel. This is just a teaser of what is to come because Jesus submits to death so that I could live. Jesus shields me from divine punishment so I could stand before God righteous. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath so I could drink at his table. Jesus takes the fall so I could be exalted. Jesus uses his power to lay down his own life and secure forgiveness for me and for you while all at the same time upholding the justice of his Father, upholding the holiness and righteousness of his Father. The great question that the gospel answers is this, how can a holy, worthy, pure, unblemished God remain that way while letting the guilty go unpunished? How's that going to be possible? The only way that happens, the answer to that question is Jesus. How can a holy God remain holy while letting me get off the hook? The cross of Christ. So here's what's true. Each one of us have sinned against God and neighbor. If you're here and you're you know, on the fence about Jesus, you're not a Christian and you think to yourself, I'm good enough, I'm a pretty good person, I can save myself, just I want you to understand and be honest with yourself for a moment. Inspect yourself for a moment. When we tell God that I don't need you, I don't need you to, uh, I don't need to submit to you, I'm fine on my own, you are signing yourself up for a life where you're going to constantly be justifying yourself, constantly vindicating yourself. And what that's going to inevitably force you to do is squash people, step on people, use people, and treat people instrumentally in keeping God at a distance when all he wants to do is forgive you and bring you into his family. So each one of us here are on the wrong side of God's justice. Each one of us here are relating to God originally, in hostility, and each one of us deserves the wrath of God. We each deserve the full gravity, not just the partial bit of it, the full gravity of God's justice. But here's what's amazing about the gospel. What we as Christians believe, Jesus stepped in and drank the cup to the very last drop. The fraction of power that Jesus released when he said, I am, I am he, and they all collapsed, that fraction of power was redirected like a boomerang back onto him, but not just a partial bit of it, the full extent of it, located directly and entirely on Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 51, 22 says this about the cup of, the, of God, God's cup. It says this, Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. What God is saying to his people there who are in exile in Babylon is the judgment is over. The punishment, it's over. You no longer will have to drink of the, of, of the, 
the bowl of my wrath, the cup of my wrath? Why will Israel be spared? Why will they be released? And we now know the full answer is because Jesus would drink it. Because Jesus drank that cup, the bowl of God's wrath, to the very last drop so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be delivered. You know, one of the things, I'll just be honest with you, one of the things that has bothered me the most as I've studied the Bible is the violence in the Old Testament. It's just brutal sometimes to read it. And sometimes it's a little hard to read, right? But one consolation I've found is that this is how God feels about sin. This is how a perfect judge, a holy being, feels about sin. He is fiercely, brutally, violently against sin. And then it clicked for me one day. It clicked for me. The fierce, brutal, violent wrath observed in the Old Testament was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Think about that. Everything that maybe disturbs you, that shocks you as you read those those scenes in the Old Testament, all of that was poured out on Jesus instead of on me. And it makes me realize that's what my own sin necessitated. That's the steep price of my own sin. And the Father and the Son agreed that the Son would step into the pathway of the Father's violent wrath and take the full force of it so I wouldn't have to. The gospel is this, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. And so now what? As Christians, we don't fear punishment. 1 John tells us perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with judgment. The verdict is in. We're forgiven. Our sin is atoned for. When you stand before God as a child of God, there is nothing between you and Him but love. There's not disappointment. There's not frustration. There's not anger. There is certainly not wrath. Because the full wrath of God was redirected and located on his own son instead of us. And the awesome thing about this is, not just that we're forgiven, but that God remains just. Do you want to worship a God who just looks the other way? Who just sweeps things under the carpet? Who just shows partiality? How can a holy God remain holy while letting the guilty go unpunished? Jesus in my place. So how often do you pause to consider and remember that you are forgiven if you're a Christian? And how often do you recall that this forgiveness, it was a willful, willful choice by Jesus? And do you remember that this forgiveness, it wasn't free, but it was infinitely costly And, and do you worship God because of it? And do you adore Jesus for it? Are you pulled into gratitude and worship because of what you believe about the gospel? Are you? I hope that the gospel catapults you into deep worship and gratitude. I do, I hope that. But I want to end now by raising the stakes even more. Yes, gratitude. Yes, worship. I want to raise the stakes and say this. I hope the gospel changes you. 
I hope the gospel transforms you and transforms me. Listen, like sermons, preaching, the point of it's not just to open up your head and dump information into you. The point of it is to dump information that deeply then begins to form you and change you. When you bring the gospel into the very center of your life, it begins to build its way out from there and undo you and build you back up into somebody who looks like Jesus, lives like Jesus, thinks like Jesus. So I hope the gospel changes you. Mark chapter 1, Jesus tells us, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so what? Repent and believe in the gospel. And I want to, to just think about this because that's a really important concept as we think about the gospel transforming us. We must repent in the gospel and believe in the gospel. The word repent is metanoia. Metanoia. Everyone say that with me. Metanoia. That's to keep you awake, all right? Metanoia. And it literally means, literally means meta, higher, noia, mind. It means higher mind. We think of repentance as I got to fix my behavior and do something different. That's not, what, that's not primarily what repentance is. First and foremost, what repentance is, it's a shift in your, in your thinking. It's a, it's a paradigm shift in the way that you view yourself and the world and God. To repent is to shift the way you think. It's about what you think. And then to believe. He says believe, or believe in the gospel. Believe is to trust. It's the same, same word, trust. And when you trust in something, it means you invest yourself in that thing, you commit to that thing, and build your life on that thing, even if you don't know the outcome even if you don't know how things are going to play out. And when you trust in something that is an authority, uh, uh, a being of authority, what it means is you obey and follow. That's what trust and believe means as Christians. We obey God and follow Him. We follow Jesus. So listen, here's what I'm trying to say. The gospel should change you into somebody who thinks like Jesus and lives like Jesus. Repentance and belief. Those two things make us think like Jesus and live like Jesus. So now, this last point is a self-examination. That's all it is right now. If we believe that Jesus is all-powerful and that in humility he has achieved forgiveness for us, that should undo us and build us up into people who are like him, who think like him and live like him. So, we've studied the overwhelming power of Jesus, the incredible humility of Jesus, and now let's lastly close by thinking together about our conformity to Jesus, our conformity to Jesus. And so, the first thing that should change is how we think, right? Repent. It should change, we should change how we think. A.W. Tozer says that the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. That single fact alone will change your life for better or worse. And if you understand the gospel and see the whole gospel, you're going to see God for who he truly is because the gospel is the full disclosure of the I am. And so what does the gospel tell us about God? He is just and justifier. He is holy, yes, but he's justifier. He's gracious, He's loving and uncompromising. He's high and holy, yet near and tender. This is who our God is. What comes to your mind when you think about God? You have to have both, just and justifier. So it changes how we think about God, but it also changes how we think about ourselves. If you believe the gospel and have brought the gospel into the center of your life, it should change how you view yourself. And this is really important. Tim Keller, Making Sense of God, when I read this, it struck me. It just made sense to me. I want to read it for you. Here's how the gospel changes how you think about yourself. It'll be on the screen behind me. He writes, what is your identity? 
It consists of at least two things. First, it consists of a sense of self that is durable. You live in many spheres at once. You are a family member at home, a colleague at work, a friend, and sometimes you are alone in solitude. To have an identity is to have something sustained that is true of you in every setting. Get that? See that? Otherwise, there would be no you. There would be only masks for every occasion, but no actual face behind them. So who are you really? What about you does not change from place to place? There needs to be a core understanding of who you are that is true from day-to-day, relationship to relationship, and situation to situation. Anyone here tired of performing? Anyone here tired of posturing, of people-pleasing, of fearing others, being just commanded by your environment, commanded by the people in your presence at any given moment? It's because you don't have a durable identity. You have an unstable identity. He continues on and says this, besides the sense of self, identity also includes a sense of worth, an assessment of your own value. We each want desperately to matter, to feel a sense of worthiness. Self-knowledge is one thing, but self-regard is another. It is one thing to know what you are like. It's another thing to appreciate it. What makes you, what about you makes you feel your life is worthwhile, good, and significant? So anyone here tired of of self-loathing? Of looking at yourself and being disappointed or disgusted or ashamed? Anyone tired of that? The sense of self and worth together compose your identity. Now here's what he writes about the gospel and how it impacts our identity. He says, And now in Christ, it is literally true that the person we adore most in the universe adores us. In the eyes of God, in the opinion of the only one in the universe whose opinion ultimately counts, we are more valuable than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. How do Christians know this is true? Jesus Christ the Son of God, who had the highest honor and name, the loftiest identity possible, emptied himself of his glory and went to the cross where he died an ignominious death so that we could have an everlasting name and identity that lasts forever. That's how much he values us. So who am I? Who are you if you're a Christian? I am who I am before God. Those things God affirms are the true me, the real me. So look, the gospel means, here's what your identity is. It's not your past. It's not even your present. It's not your future. Your identity is not what you achieve, and it's not what you do. Your your identity is not what others think about you. And here, listen to this. Your identity is not even what you think of yourself, what your opinion is of yourself. Your identity, if you're in Christ, is the very righteousness of Jesus that causes God the Father to dance over you in singing. That's your identity if you're a Christian. If you believe that and bring it into the center of your life, you become a durable, resilient person, otherworldly completely. The gospel also changes not just what we think about God, think about ourselves, but also what we think about others. Others, how we think about others changes too. Because here's why. If the gospel is true, if Jesus actually had to take the full force of God's wrath against my sin to save me, to pay for my penalty and forgive me, then that means I am no better than anybody else. I can agree with Paul that I am the chief of sinners, the most unworthy to, be, to have the title Christian. 
because this is what was necessary for my forgiveness. Therefore, the gospel changes you like this. You never look down on anyone else. You just cease ever looking down on anyone else. And also, it just eliminates cynicism towards other people from your life. Because if you could be saved, if Jesus died for you and brought you to him, that means there's hope for anybody. And so you actually, as a Christian, don't grow in judgment, don't grow in opinion, you know, don't grow in cynicism towards other people. You grow in hope and love and optimism for other people because you're the chief of sinners, just like me. You look at the world differently. The gospel changes how you think. The gospel also changes now how we live. So here's life, okay? You ready for life? Here's how the gospel changes it. We run into suffering. We're all going to suffer, of course. But the gospel means we don't complain because we think, oh, this is nothing compared to the cup of Jesus. I will drink whatever cup God places before me because Christ drank the cup of wrath for me. We have people around us who, need, who we need to serve children, spouses, a church family. We have people to pour ourselves out for, and we think to ourselves, Jesus used his power, his resources, his privilege to advantage me, to bless me, to exalt me. How could I withhold my blessing from anybody else? We face conflict and pain, conflict in relationships, and we think, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so I could be forgiven. I have no business withholding that from anybody else. I will pay the cost. I will absorb the wrath of love, of giving love, that transaction of love. Whatever forgiveness may cost, I'll take the brunt of that because Jesus already did that for me. Further, we see death. We see death. All of us will face death. And as a Christian, death is transformed into your friend. Do you believe that? Because death does you a favor. Death transports you into actual life, true life, life in God's presence forever. And so you can actually taunt death. You can actually greet death. We see God's moral commands, his law, his instruction. And as Christians now, we actually want to do them. Like we want to obey. We want to keep his law. We want to subject ourselves to his vision for life because we have discovered surprisingly that that's actually the way to freedom, not bondage. And to be our own God, to be our own master, to be our own final authority, that's the pathway to bondage and corruption. And Jesus' way is the pathway to freedom and fulfillment. God's law shows me the person I was made to be and who the Spirit is bringing about. And lastly, it changes life. The gospel changes life in this way. The very trust structures of our life are changed. You know, we treat people and things like our jobs instrumentally. What can I get out of this relationship? How can this person or thing make me happy? How can it fulfill me and make my life okay? And listen, as long as you operate that way, you will never be happy. You will never feel enough security. You'll always be grasping for more and squeezing other people and squeezing things, trying to get out of them something they'll never be able to deliver for you. But when you believe the gospel and you're reconciled to God, now you have finally found the only one person, the only one being in the whole existence who can actually make you happy, who actually can handle the weight of those expectations that your soul is putting on somebody. And so when your trust structures change, you begin living for God, finding your satisfaction in Him. You begin to see Him be faithful time and time again, answer prayer, come through when it seems like there was no other option, there was no hope. What begins to happen 
is you get excited about trusting him. You actually get excited about taking a step of faith and you don't know the outcome. You don't know how it's going to play out. Life with God literally becomes an adventure. The gospel changes everything. If you would be willing to bring it into the center of your life, change the way you think, then change the way you live. One last quote to end here. One author says this. Listen to this. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. Your destiny, both just the shape and substance of your life and your eternal destiny, is going to be dictated, determined, initially by what you think. By your framework for how you see yourself and how you see life. And then after that, how you live. The choices you make, the actions you take. Because it's those first two things that are going to define your character, who you become, your formation. And then your formation is going to decide your destiny. Your destiny is just the punctuation, the, the ultimate just realization of who you've been, been becoming all along. So a thought, you reap an action. Reap an action, you reap a habit, then character, then your destiny. And the gospel wants to change your, de- your destiny. Life with God now, life with him in the age to come. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's, let's pray. God, we come to you now and we are so thankful that we don't have to fear. If we're in Christ, we don't have to fear punishment, judgment. The verdict is in. We are forgiven. We are approved. And we are accepted. And so God, I pray for anyone here now who is thinking about you undecided uncommitted to you, that you would just help them realize today that nothing else makes sense but this, that there's no other hope under heaven but this, and that life on our own, alienated from you, is just a mess, and it's causing us to go down a trajectory where we're going to be separated from you forever. And so, God, I pray that you draw us to you, draw us to you today. We thank you for the gospel, the cross for your son who drank the cup for us so we never have to. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.